The God of Atheists, Chapter 4, Alder Alder's father had been a tree surgeon, a man of famously ferocious will. Alder's first memory was of an admonition. He was about five, and had stolen some cookies, and his father sat him down. Son, he said, self-control is the whole point of life. Have you ever seen me smoke? No. But I used to. I smoked for fifteen years. The day I read that cigarettes are bad for you, I got up out of my chair, took a full pack out of my breast pocket, crumpled it up, and threw it in the garbage. It took me two years to stop reaching for a smoke. Cookies are nothing, you see. You've just got to be stern with yourself. You say, I want it, so what? And walk away. There's nothing easier. His mother had the same incomprehensibly practical streak. Once, when Alder had skipped school, the vice-principal had phoned his house. His mother had waited for him to come home, and then asked him why he wasn't at school that day. "'I was sick,' he said. "'Where?' she asked. He replied, "'I threw up in the playground, and then went to a friend's.' The school was about twenty minutes' walk from their house. Alder's mother took his hand and half dragged him to the school. She demanded to know where he had thrown up. "'I wish it had rained,' he thought in agony, marching back and forth in the playground, pretending to look. His mother's hand closed over his own like a wet, fleshy vice. There was ruthless exposure, but little punishment. It was very humiliating, and the humiliation wasn't even assuaged by just censure. It was all cornered confession, without the sweet release of absolution.' Nothing seemed that difficult for his parents. They referred to each other as mother and father, went on public park barbecues with their hard, stalwart friends. They lived in a staunch, sealed community of lower-class English immigrants. They had a pub where they ate little packets of crisps and watched rugby and cricket on a snowy screen. They derided the PBS pledge breaks, which interrupted their favorite Anglo sitcoms, they read the Daily Mail at the local library three days late. They lived without passion, without temptation, without imagination. They never fought. They also, to Alder's view, lived on an utterly alien planet. He was not popular, but not unpopular either. He had a smattering of friends, some immigrant children like himself, as a teen, he went dirt-biking in litter-strewn woods, hung out at railroad tracks, shoplifted briefly. He hid his mind and imagination from all social contact, picturing his creativity as a kind of deep, compressed, black-water fish that would blow its eyes out if dragged up to the sunny surface. All rules are blind impositions, he thought, as he was disciplined by teachers, principals, his parents. Alder was reactive and sceptical, but had no inner discipline, and so dissolved a little, day by day, as rules and hostility wore him down. Thus, he was mostly lost to himself, long before he went to university. Once he got there, however, he took his first philosophy class, and stumbled across a strange, almost convulsive passion in himself. The professor a man so ancient he was believed to have conversational knowledge of the Enlightenment, totted up to the podium and spoke about Descartes. This man, Descartes, put forward the following argument. 
Suppose that everything you perceive is the work of a malevolent demon who has the ability to completely manipulate your senses. For you, then, each of you, the fact that I am standing up here and lecturing to you is not real. Neither is the seat you sit on, the family you have, or the paper you write on. Everything is a deception. The demon controls everything you see, everything you feel. So how could you ever know the truth? This drove Descartes almost mad, until he found a solution. Everything might be a lie, said Descartes, but there is one truth, one thing that is indisputably real, and that is that you are being fooled. Something exists which is being manipulated. Nothing you believe might be true except that you believe something. This is the root of I think, therefore I am. Alda heard little after that. There was something deliciously deep about this possibility, not only of being fooled, but that he was worthy of fooling. Fantasy and specialness made a fateful union. He knew that this was a symbolic argument, but he enjoyed playing the game of finding inconsistencies in his mass theatre of illusion. Years later, when the film The Matrix came out, he would use it in his lectures. What is the difference between a perfect illusion and what you call sensual reality? He would ask his students after playing them Lawrence Fishburne's speech about The Matrix. Or more simply, if all you did was dream, how would you know it? Alter knew that there were good arguments against this but they all seemed beyond the reach of his students. For the most part, they also didn't believe him. Everything may be an illusion, they grumbled, but still we have to turn our papers in on time. Alder praised creative arguments against objective truth, which he called thinking outside the box, and would challenge his students to further undermine their belief in reality. He fantasized that he was opening their minds, but it was a very unfair contest. It took mankind half a million years to discover science and truly believe in reality, to escape the sightless absolutes of tribalism and religion. Could he really expect blank-eyed undergraduates, fresh from the brain-mincing boredom of high school, to make the leap all at once? Alder was blatantly biased, but believed that he was provoking thought. All common-sense arguments about the reality of existence were dismissed as rustic philistinism. He provoked laughter when the rare student, often a Randian objectivist, argued for objective truth. He downgraded papers which made the same points, noting in the margin, this supposition is unproved, no matter that the limit for papers was often five pages, to make you use language more effectively, which made any essential proofs impossible. The fact that other students were not marked down for agreeing that reality was the dream of a demon surely as unproven a supposition, did not trouble him. My job is to overturn stale assumptions, provoke thought, and do mental habits. The entire world of academics excited Alder beyond measure. The student plays about estranged lovers hunting each other with nail-guns through abandoned houses, or inverted theatre where the audience sat on the stage and the actors performed in the seats, it was all very heady. The grubby, unshaven scribes of the university newspaper with marked buttons on their worn lapels and their condescending knowledge of the third-world atrocities committed by multinational corporations, 
the wild riots when the world leaders came to Toronto to discuss economics, the insurrections by radical feminists to get the word seminal struck from academic language, the jaw-thrusting assertions of the need for a faculty of her story, the raging of students when fees approached 10% of the costs of having them in university. Everything was radical, everything was reactionary, and Alder sank happily into the wild, foggy world of unconsidered opinions, leaving barely a trace. It was the fall of Marxism that gave him the most pleasure. Marxism is the opiate of intellectuals, he repeated over and over with a sardonic smile to the twitchy phalanxes of frothing leftist undergraduates. Alter hated systems of any kind. Any belief in the predictability of society and its structures undermined the ultimate authority of the Cartesian demon. Or, he would say, it's a nice theory, but it doesn't work in practice because people are selfish. This was a delicious moment to destroy the link between theory and practice at the same time as stating that people were too immoral to live under a dictatorship? Oh, was there anything headier? Alder remained far enough from the faculty of science to avoid the simple rebuttal, which is that a theory which does not work in practice is not in fact a good theory. Oh, and the language! This was perhaps the greatest achievement of the previous generations of thinkers. Postmodern academic language was the true tongue of the demon, of that much Alder was utterly sure. All contrary arguments arise from power structures. Nothing brilliant can be expressed in simple language. The degree of obscurity is the degree of depth. Alda knew that it was all foolishness, all a case of the emperor's new clothes. But that was the beauty of it. Everything was an illusion. Why should language be any different? Something in him eroded, crumbled, then finally fell. Within two years of attaining the podium... Alder began opposing everything, even the demon itself. He no longer argued for the demon and against objective reality. Now he argued against both. This, of course, is the final victory of the demon, but he was too deep in its blank grip to know that. As he led his students deeper into the hearty madness of absolute relativism, his classes began to grow febrile with unmanageable conflicts. Once there was even a yelling match, which culminated in a book-throwing and a storming out, which excited him beyond words. Now they care, he thought, as he sarcastically addressed the silent class about the vanity and irrationality of passion. And then, and then, unto altar was born a son. Stephen was a fascinating baby. He learned words and language unseasonably quickly, and discovered object constancy at five months. Although Stephen developed early, to Alder there were some stages which his curious son simply refused to outgrow. In particular, the phase of endless questions seemed itself endless. When Stephen was six, Alder was made a full professor. Stephen saw his father as a super-teacher who taught big people how to think. It seemed odd to him that you had to wait until you were almost twenty to be very tall with hairy toes to learn how to think. I mean, what am I learning now? So he would ask his father to explain. Daddy's a teacher of big people, Alder would say. How big? Like giants? Alder smiled. Big like uh, twenty years old. What do you teach them? 
The idea of having hairy toes and needing instruction on anything seemed too odd for words. Might teach them how to think, how to be good. Stephen would slowly nod, his blue eyes wide and serious. Like, don't lie? Don't take cookies? Share? Be nice? Yeah, like that. How long does that take? asked Stephen. Years, murmured his father. Years and years and years. Being good must be hard. Yeah, I guess so. Stephen thought about this. Am I good? Yeah. And Mommy? Yeah. And... and you? Good? Aldous' lips widened. I try. Stephen frowned. I'm good. Mommy's good. You try. I know a lot more about being bad, said Alder. I read all about it in very big books. Stephen leaned forward, overjoyed to be having an important conversation with his dad. So, who's the worst person ever? The worst? Hmm. Well, there are two answers to that, like uh, someone who does something bad and someone who tells other people to do something bad. Like... Stephen screwed up his eyes, trying to sort out his inner images. Like the Pied Piper. Huh? Like, if he pushes a kid off a cliff, that's... Uh, but, but, if, but if he makes like a jillion kids jump off a cliff, that's... Sure, those are different, not the same. So, who's the worst who pushed someone off a cliff? I mean, ever, asked Stephen eagerly. Alda frowned. Good thing Joanne's in the garden, he thought. He doubted that discussing violence with his son, however essential to the male world, would meet with her approval. Don't know. A mad, bad man, I guess, a killer. What's a killer? A very bad man. What's his name? It, it's not one person. It's like it's like kid. It means lots of kids. Huh. So, so, so who's the baddest talker ever? Well, that's hard to say. Some say it was a German man, some say a Greek man, some say a Russian woman, but she's not really respected where I work. What did they say? Alda smiled and glanced down at his book. Well, that's sort of what I teach twenty-year-olds. Who do you think was the baddest? Worst, corrected Alder. I guess none of them. The worst, and I wouldn't put it that way, are people who don't think at all, who just do whatever they do, like sheep. Huh. Stephen thought of his wool blanket. Wool comes from sheep. Is my blanket made from people who don't think? But he was afraid to ask his father. He hated that laugh, the one that came when he asked something that turned out to be silly. So, who was the bestest? Alda sighed. Just the best, Stephen. The, the difficulty here is that everyone says something different. What do you say? asked Stephen, trying to muster as much enthusiasm as he could. I, I say that being good is supposed to make you happy, so whoever is happiest is the best. Alder put his glasses back on. Now, now, I have to read this, Stephen. Oh, said Stephen, downcast. Not because he desperately wanted to know, but because he could feel the connection with his father twisting away like a fish in his hand suddenly squirming back into a shallow, chilly stream. Stephen is like a punishment, thought Alder, never asking, for what? Because he had no belief in logic or consequences, he could only think about pain in narcissistic terms. The only way to fight his open-minded father is with absolutism, he thought, remembering Alex P. Keaton, the right-wing son of hippie parents on family ties. But it was deeper than that. The phrase, the sins of the father, rotated in his mind like a screensaver of spinning text. But the concept of sin was beyond him, or above him, perhaps.
he could only see his son as a child inhabited by some mutant, regressive, medieval gene. He's going to end up with big hair on late-night TV, striding and begging for money with righteous anger. It was... It was the intransigence of his son's beliefs that maddened him. I can live with him, let him be, let him believe what he wants, but he won't do the same with me. That was, perhaps, the deepest, least forgivable insult. As a relativist, he didn't mind an absolutist, unless the absolutist left no room for relativism. Alder winced. Stephen is like my fucking father, come back to life in Star Wars pajamas. He would wake up and make daily pledges to himself in the manner of irritable parents since the dawn of time. I'm taking this too personally. He's just a kid. It's a phase. He's trying to get under my skin. I'm a professor. It's such an unfair contest. Everything's simple when you're five feet high. But then Stephen would ask some question at breakfast as he read the newspaper. What 11-year-old reads the business section? about government corruption or stock manipulations or aid to third-world dictatorships or privatization, and they would be off like a shot. Stephen asking maddeningly simple questions which jabbed endless pins into Alder's ballooning explanations. Alder remembered one such discussion when Stephen was a little older about some loans the government had made to a business that had donated it money. Dad, what's going to happen with this? Well, son, it's how politics work, but no one likes to have it so out in the open. Stephen's eyes widened. So the problem was that they got caught? Well, governments get elected by promising favors. It costs a lot of money to get elected, and so when they get into power, they have to give favors to the people who gave the money. But here it says that the government gave $1.6 million to this company, which gave... Uh, hang on. Uh, $70,000 to the Liberals. That's a good deal. Alder nodded. Yes, it is. Now, the Prime Minister says that it was still good because the money went to business development in Quebec. Well, Quebec was thinking of separating from the country. His son frowned. So, corruption is okay if the end result is good? No, it's more complicated than that. Do you think it's wrong? Well, it's how the system works at the moment. In a perfect world, sure, you wouldn't need that kind of stuff, but politics is a lot of grey, a lot of fudging and favours. The Liberals are usually pretty good at playing the game, but not this time. Stephen returned to his cereal, and Alda had exchanged a glance with Joanne, both of them sighing in mute relief. But they were not to get off so easy. So, if some student came and paid you for a good mark and then became a great academic, that would be okay? They were off again that morning. Things got particularly ugly. Alda had been late for his lecture, hating to leave Stephen in tears. As he drove, his stomach knotting at every traffic light, he felt guilt about making his son cry, because he did not know the innocent vengeance that his son, through mere curiosity, was hatching at that very moment. Chapter 5 Sarah and Alice meet. Sarah and Alice were powerless in the face of their sudden union. There was such ecstasy, such exclusive inclusion, such a sudden quicksand of understanding, that they were as blameless as crack babies. Doomed love unfolded its dark wings over the neat suburban worlds of their families. Shakespeare strode through lawn sprinklers with terrible eyes and poetic flames. When they made contact, there was a distant rumble, 
An Aztec rain-cloud seemed to gather over the neat houses and tight hedgerows, and plastic toys left on the lawns turned and wept in the sudden joy of harsh rains, and mothers ran with their children under newspapers, and there was the fear and exhilaration of rearing, uncaring, flexing nature, which evoked the mad flight and lolling pleasures of our animal natures. Taxes were forgotten, and old stories came to mind, and mothers for a moment saw the fruits of their loins and held them close. And men sat on sky-darkened couches, remembering the heft of a spear and wet beards of blue paint, and there were old smiles and spotted skins and wind-sniffing and swinging members and the sensuality of deep life returned. And there were no obligations, no duties, just the snuffing loyalties of deep scent and the loving intimacy of a slow hunt. Alice and Sarah met and fused in an instant over the slumbering bodies of their little acquaintances, and from that night, for the rest of their lives, they were to be twins. They were swept up in Plato's tornado, and their union was the second thread in the unravelling of the society around them. They took to walking together in the playground in strange zigzags and rotations like crop circles or the swinging powder of a gyroscopic toy. They did not complete each other's sentences because there was a genuine curiosity and joy in discovery. They did not play with other children, did not notice boys, and were united against bullies. Their swinging lunar passions began tides of loyalties in those around them, and the coalescing curious group of girls around them yearned for them and hated them in equal measure. For some time Alice and Sarah's parents were well pleased their daughters became less volatile, because they were less hungry. There were fewer slumber parties, and in a matter of months they had disappeared entirely, and they were happy that each daughter had at last found a fast friend. Like many people with few adult friends, they had a sentimental notion of childhood attachments, thought them cute, imagined their daughters following each other through watershed marriages, births, deaths, and finally playing bridge on a Florida porch in the whitening sunset of life. But any stab at chick-flick sentimentality went out the window at the girl's first assault on certain feminine values. As puberty approached, so did fashion. For these girls, the great question of attraction was, unfortunately, answered by teen movies and music videos. One afternoon, sitting in Sarah's basement, their homework spread on their laps, Sarah and Alice watched a music video. One Miss B. Spears was giving them a fairly clear instruction on the nature of female sexuality. "'That's so fake,' snorted Alice. Sarah's eyes were fixed on the television. "'My brother says that they're fake.' "'Her boobies,' said Alice seriously. Yeah. She laughed, pushed her homework off her lap, jumped up, and started dancing, shaking her bottom outrageously. I'm Britney Spears. I'm a virgin. I don't know why people think I'm so sexy. She lifted her top. Look at my belly. Look! Sarah smiled. I don't want to be like that. Everyone's supposed to be cute, you know? Like, he's so cute. But I, I don't know what they mean about that. Like, pretty? Like you? I'm not pretty, cried Alice, still dancing around. I'm sexy. She paused, pressing her hand to her chest. Ooh, sexy is tiring. Sarah laughed. 
Another video came on, Kylie Minogue. She's sexy, but so skinny, I'm never going to diet. Alice flopped down and grabbed a Twizzler from a bowl. You're thin already. No, I mean if I end up liking chocolate and weighing 200 pounds, or stay fat after I have a baby, I'm never going to diet. Never? What if you have a life-threatening illness? I... What if you're going to get diabetes? What if you can't get on the bus anymore, or sit in a movie seat, or take a plane? Sarah laughed. Okay, I'll diet if I'm going to die, but not for boys, not for boys and magazines and nasty, nasty girls who whisper, they cried out together, Ooh, she's getting so fat. No, not for them, said Sarah, not for anyone but me. Alice smiled. But okay, there's a boy. Let's say a cute boy. Cute in the right way, not just soppy cute. Maybe a bit of stubble cute. Cute with a little danger. And he just doesn't like fat girls. And, okay, no, listen. He comes up to you and says, Sarah, I love you. I'd marry you if you were thinner. I mean, it's bad to be fat, so better health, cute boy, big social life, marriage, dancing, children, grandkids, big house. You'd take chocolate over that? Huh. Sarah considered this. But you never said love. Well, love. I mean, love, that's, that's assumed. But if I loved him, and he loved me, why would I need to be thin? Alice flopped back on the sofa. Well, okay, he's an Olympic athlete, a rower. She sat up excitedly. No, a gymnast, and a horse rider, with his own horses. She hugged herself tightly. And he's all, my love, my love, I just want us to be able to do things together, and here you've gone and squashed another one of my poor horsies. They both giggled. Sarah cried out, Oh, my love, it's so important to stick the landing. This was about as sexual as they got. They wouldn't have been able to explain what sticking the landing meant exactly, but it seemed funny anyway. Alice wiped her eyes and then said, with great gravity, Actually, it's not the boys you've got to worry about. Sarah smiled tenderly. You're so cute when you get all serious like that. All of a sudden it's like, Knock-knock, who's there? A joke? No. It's the most serious girl in the world. Alice shrugged. Boys are just happy to have you near, I think. They're not as fussy as... I mean, like Rachel yesterday with her hair clip, that leather thing with the chopsticks through it. Big conference in the washroom. Did you see Rach? What's that in her hair? It's so 90s, so Sarah McLaughlin, so granola. Fifteen minutes on a hair thing. I don't think boys even notice. She smiled. I mean, they'd notice a hundred extra pounds on your hips, but girls know if you had pasta for lunch, you know? Like, the creases on your jeans are just different. Ooh, did you have a high-carb lunch? That messes up your metabolism for days, you know. Sarah imitated her mother. Nothing tastes as good as thin feel, sweetie. Once on the lips, forever on the hips. Would your dad love your mom if she was fat? Sarah paused, frowning. Her pursed mouth moved from side to side. Don't know. I'd like to see what he'd do if she stopped dyeing her hair. I'm never going to do that, either. Then we'll just have to marry each other and have a motorcycle wedding. No ring, no priests, no pretty dresses. We'd be two fat girls, so big we couldn't even get into a church. And we'd only get married for the cake. They laughed again. And then it was Sarah's turn to become serious. But, no, I mean, why would we? We don't even like these girls any more. Why would we want? The makeup, the clothes, the the right scrunchies, right singers, right right friends, right hobbies. Hm, murmured Alice. Cause it's too much work not to. Because gossip is so mean. 
She turned over, propping herself up on her elbow. And dressing up can be fun. Yeah, but every day? For a dance, maybe. Alice turned the idea over in her head. They both heard the rumble of parental movements upstairs. You're talking about a strike, she said finally. I guess I am, murmured Sarah, brushing back her hair. I really, really am. Okay, so like what? No makeup. Sensible hair, comfortable shoes, no bathroom conferences, no dieting. You can't live off diet pop anyway. That's why sexy is so tiring. That will be our story. But we were pretty once upon a time, and we gave it all up to come here and live as monks. But why would we do it, any of it, to get boys? Is that all that pretty is for? Because your mom is prettier than my mom, but, but your mom is thinner. Yeah, but it's like boiled spaghetti thin. Your mom has muscles. Alice nodded. That Tybo tape never leaves the VCR. She, she does calf raises while the kettle boils. But pretty counts more than thin. You think so? Sarah jumped up, sitting on her heels. Okay, uh, Kate Winslet. Sarah Jessica Parker, counted Alice. Sarah thought for a moment. J-Lo's behind. Alice frowned, waving her hands excitedly. Ooh, oh, you know, sad-eyed freckles, you know, movies? Shallow hell, great expectations, Shakespeare in love? Sarah frowned. Oh, I can never remember her name either, but I know who you mean. Your turn. Um, uh, big pretty girls. I think if we were European... Well, Marilyn Monroe, of course. Alice waved her hand. Well, sure, but that's ancient. I mean, pretty people now. Sarah paused. My point is that your mom is prettier than my mom, and so she gets... Well, well your dad makes more than my dad, but I, I mean, are, are any of them really happy? Happy, echoed Alice. This was an uncomfortable point, parental happiness. Sarah was a little braver, though. So, our moms are pretty and thin, and they got men, cute men, I, I guess, when they weren't so old, but it wasn't, you know, the, the happily ever after thing. My mom always phones my dad and says, You said you were going to be home by six. Are you still at work? Where are you? And she's always listening for background noises. Uh, that doesn't seem like a happy person. Happy adults, murmured Alice, relieved to go from family specifics to abstract humanity. Okay, who do we know who's over twenty, say, and really happy? And so they went on throughout the afternoon, making lists and comparisons, mapping the invisible world they lived in, a lonely, amoral, technological world where a dime can be seen from outer space, but happiness is invisible from within a family. Chapter 6. Stephen Grows Up Stephen grew close to his mother, but circled his father with watchful, waiting eyes, for Alder had turned out to be a decidedly skittish family man. There are men who make families out of the joys of their hearts, from the overrunning of their copious souls, and there are men who wander into the enclosure of family life on the wings of accidental greed, like a bird that flies into a house for food and warmth, and then hesitates, torn between comfort and freedom. Alda had the soul of a distracted idealist, a soul at endless war with the complex and contradictory pleasures of a family. As a child he loved daydreams and fantasies, his closest friends were imaginary. In university he found certain streams of thought that were sustenance unto themselves, 
Plato, Wittgenstein, Hegel, Nietzsche, postmodernists of every hue, here he could sit and dream, rummaging through his own imagery, floating free of proof, of argument, soaring through the solemn insubstantiality of academic language. He found he had a gift for seducing loose minds with passion, poetry, and procrastination. In graduate school, Alter began rankling against objectivity, logic, empiricism, any idea or standard that opposed his imagination. Of course, this kind of thinking is a kind of self-medication, a drugging, a dissociation, and as family life closed around him, it was not entirely unexpected that Alder would grit his teeth against the desire to flee. All the practicality of flu shots and ball tossing and hooking heavy bookshelves to the wall and developing the disaster radar of parents with toddlers, all that leaned against his delicate mental house of cards like an insistent wind. A certain oppositional element arose in his personality, a habitual irritation, a withdrawal, a skittiness, which drove Joanne quite mad. Wooing is elemental to the start of any romantic relationship, but a man who circles his family like a skittish foal surely draws out the come-hither time frame to a ridiculous degree. Joanne found herself constantly selling family life to her husband, making it pleasant for him, quieting her son, foregoing her naps, tidying the toys, seducing him several times a week, when all she wanted was to be held and soothed. She hesitated to breastfeed in front of Alder, he seemed to dislike allowing Stephen to trespass on what was to him a largely adult playground. She jumped up when he came home unexpectedly, interrupting a coven of new mothers sitting in her living room, muttering the wild secrets of the newly matriarchal. Uh, th they were just, what, leaving, talking? Joanne felt pulled between her new pleasures as a mother, so much greater than she had ever expected, and her husband's fundamental, maddening hesitation. Open your heart! Alda, she prayed daily as she and Stephen waited outside, tapping gently and listening hard for sounds from within. Alda was so ridiculously bad at playing with his son that it truly broke Joanne's heart. She would stand in the hallway sometimes, eavesdropping on the growing irritation in Alda's voice as he gave persistent and useless instructions to the giggling, grabbing infant. No, don't go there. Come to Daddy. That doesn't go in your mouth. This is not a toy. Come here and settle down. Stephen could not fail to notice his father's eccentric orbit. One of his earliest memories was of sitting in a shopping cart in a bright grocery store. His father was standing fifteen feet away. His mother asked for some tins, and Alder tossed them into the cart from where he was. And Joanne cried out, "'You might hit Stephen!' Alder was offended, as if his athletic ability was being questioned, and he moved from fifteen feet away to twenty. When Stephen was older five or so. He remembered being in the same store, coming across his parents after losing them, and they were fighting in fierce whispers. And when Stephen came around the aisle, Joanne threw back her head and laughed. Stephen had covered his face with price stickers. Even Alder smiled and knelt down awkwardly to peel the tags off his son's giggling face, and Stephen was very happy then for over half an hour. Being in the car was strange, too. Stephen would be buckled in the back seat, giggling as the world swung past the windows in a wild, shifting canvas of outside, and his mother would be in the front passenger seat, her head turned towards Stephen, tickling his belly and cooing and asking him questions, 
and what a delight it was to be asked questions, though there was no way to answer, and as yet no answer to be given. His opinion was still being sought. His father, on the other hand, almost never looked back until Joanne asked him to at least four times. "'I'm driving,' he would say, as if driving required his full concentration, although he considered it perfectly okay to play with the radio. In fact, during car trips, Stephen got so accustomed to seeing the back of his father's head and the front of his mother's that years later, when he came across the two-faced mask of Janus in a book of mythology, he felt a positive shudder. And so it was that Joanne faced the greatest temptation of her adult life. Wooing Alter, playing his leash as he ran around the family, was exhausting, and she felt the saddest undercurrent of solitary motherhood, the belief that one's husband is just another child. It seemed selfish to ask her, a new mother with no job, to provide all the emotional maintenance of a family, and it was. Alder placed the rudder completely in Joanne's hands, and then went up to the crow's nest to enjoy the view. Not fair, she thought, not fair. Joanne was fraying at the edges, losing herself. In her dreams she was an Egyptian mummy, an anthropologist, unwound her bandages, and all her sacred dust poured away. But there was a temptation, a solution. There was a waiting, willing child, wide-eyed, and so in love with her, so ready and happy and full of delight in her presence. Joanne knew it was wrong, but she began to grapple Stephen just to the limits of his endurance. She would hold on to him until he squirmed, and then laugh and joke his discomfort away. Joanne took Stephen on long walks and talked to him about her friends. She would ask him questions about his school, his friends, his thoughts, but she would also broach topics too adult for him, but in terms so guiltily generalized that he felt more confused than used. Problems with friends, her parents, and once problems with Alder, and also once fears about money. But some part of Joanne killed those topics quick, and she walked quickly on with a jerk of the head and averted eyes. And so it was that adult secrets, adult hesitations, adult contradictions, all these were a goodly part of Stephen's daily diet, and they were also to have great effect on his life, and so also on his parents' lives. And this is as it should be. It is inevitable. All the evasions we sow return as absolutes. We cannot escape.